as has been mentioned this morning, how thankful we each are, no doubt, that God has blessed us with the capability, both in terms of health and other matters of disposition, to assemble and gather today. Thankful for, among all the things that Brother Allen mentioned to us, the pieces of good news about the improvements in health that some have made. He also brought to our attention about that newspaper article that we as a congregation are pleased to be able to sponsor. As mentioned, that will run, if it be my understanding, about the from the gentleman that leads to the radio at the uh, newspaper place. Every other week will be the, the location or at least the timing of that. So look forward to that and encourage others to read it. Our goal through that is simply to put forth the truth from the Word of God that will challenge others who, for many of them, they seemingly don't avail themselves of opportunities to approach the Bible in as direct a way as they should. This morning, for the next few moments, I would encourage you to think with me about that passage that Matt read just a moment ago. In the closing verses of Proverbs 3, chapter number 23, we encounter a passage that is so very challenging in many ways because it has, throughout the ages of time, run directly counter to what culture and society so often proclaims to us. And there is not a bit of difference, of course, in that relative to that difference today. You and I still live in a time that you and I know so well about what alcoholic beverages are set before the world in terms of commercials, in terms of encouragement, in terms of the basic acceptability to the mind of so very many. And yet, as that is put before us, it is not at all uncommon for even those who claim belief in the Bible to say a little drinking is fine. There are many who will climb in a pulpit and say moderate drinking is not condemned in the Bible. They're going to answer the God of heaven for such a foolish disposition. When you and I look with care at the concourse of all that God has to say, and we're going to only look at this little set of verses this morning, let's strive to ask, if we might, what is the fair, the honest conclusion about this subject? I would ask, as you think about it, this particular passage will have much to say, so I hope we can make good use of what time we do have. We may be moving at times a bit on the quick side, but I trust that the comments we make as they are reiterated by virtue of these verses will be so very penetrating and so very moving to each of us. You'll notice at the very top of that slide, it truly is a constant barrage that our culture and our society puts before even those who have a confidence and a faith in the Word of God. A recent article that I saw, perhaps you did as well, there are even 8th and ninth graders who are binge drinking these days. And by the time they reach high school, they hone that skill, if you can call it that, and by the time they reach college age, it's a woeful disposition. As you know, I work on a college campus, a university, if you please, and although this Lipscomb University, I'm not aware of it being like this, when I worked at Kentucky, and I was a fairly good friend to the police officer who patrolled the campus, and he would tell me about the raiding of the dorm rooms and the collecting of all the alcohol that the students had. It brings tears to your eyes to think of such misguided activities, and yet, TV commercials encourage it. Songs lifted high as though it's fun and pleasurable and the only way to live it up. And time and again, so many travel down that pathway that they will regret for a lifetime. Today, what does the Word of God say about it? And let's be honest. 
let's let God do the talking, and as always, we do the listening. As we begin that, there will be a number of points to today's lesson. Like I mentioned, they'll be rather brief as we proceed through them with quickness, but all of them will be taken, basically, from the set of verses that Matt read earlier. Why don't we start with point number one. Earlier in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 4, verse number 17, we have this rather innocent statement. As the inspired writer Solomon commented about the nature of what wickedness brings, he commented in a very general and graphic way about the nature of what wickedness sets before us in terms of bread. And then notice in the second part of that verse, he makes mention, as you can well see, about the wine of violence. Isn't it a rather obvious observation that on so many occasions, violent activity goes hand in hand with alcohol? The social consumption. When an individual, after having a little bit to drink, then thinks he or she is far different and far stronger than otherwise they are, and violence seems to naturally follow therefrom. I realize that you and I may remember old television shows where in the ancient West we see these men in a saloon start fighting. They bust up the tables and break the windows. And we think about the show that's presented, but quite frankly, it's disgusting and always has been. To think of someone disturbing property and bursting and destroying property by virtue of alcohol and what it leads them to do. You'll notice as you think about the activity of this violence, I have given you a quote. Now this only has to do with the city of Los Angeles, but think about applying it nationwide. With regard to this, an official in that city said among spousal abuse victims, a full three-quarters, 75% of them, stated that the offender had been drinking. Three out of every four of them accompanied alcohol. Violence. Didn't Solomon in the long ago comment about the wine of violence, how that they so often go together? Surely, as you can think about those verses, you and I have just noted Proverbs chapter 4, but notice the opening proclamation of Proverbs chapter 20. It is a verse that you and I have so often recollected, but its majesty and its strength is unassailed. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Of all the attributes of that verse, might I ask you to notice, strong drink is said to be raging, and the ancient Hebrew word means brawling and growling. It is such that it agitates so often those who imbibe, and in so doing, they proceed to act with violence. Point number two. What else did Solomon have to say? You'll notice this one is the very statement of verse 29 of Proverbs 23. Matt so aptly read for us the considerations, but notice the questions that are put to us in, 20, in verse 29, the one just before the reading began. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Pause with me and just think. Two questions have been asked. Who is the individual that is subject to woe? And who is the individual who has sorrow? You and I would like to hear the answer. Look at verse 30. The person that has woe and the person who has sorrow is they that tarry long at the wine and they that go to seek mixed wine. Solomon has asserted then that with hand-in-hand -hand consideration to alcohol will come woe and sorrow. Alcohol does bring heartache. It brings lapses in judgment. It brings regretful activities. 
And when one then comes to his or her senses and realizes, what have I done? And by then it's too late. Woe. As you can well tell, this word woe carries the thought in the ancient language of the word despair. Despair. Not happiness, not deep-seated and genuine joy, but despair. What about that word sorrow? You'll notice that literally means pain. Again, in the ancient Hebrew language. There's an associated consideration of an element of painfulness that will come with alcohol taken in this social way. Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? A lot of things have been mentioned in that verse all associated with this matter of wine. For right now, might I ask you to notice, perhaps it's time to bring into our discussion the very opening statement of Proverbs 22. When you and I think about this matter of woe and this matter of sorrow, how I many an individual after partaking in some alcohol then does something and they have brought an element of tarnish, an element of rather disgraceful behavior on themselves and their family? Didn't Solomon say that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor more so than silver and gold? A good name. And how many a good name has alcohol tarnished, marred, and in fact even ruined? Notice God in long ago said that it would be so. Point number three. After so far looking at these three, what about number Three at the above, taken from that same verse. Who hath contentions? Now remember, this series of questions is such that the same answer is the one given to all of them. Who is the individual who faces contentions? In this context, he quickly says, it's the one who seeks wine, and it's the one who tarries long at it. It's the one who seeks mixed wine. As you and I think about the matter of contentions, You'll notice that isn't it true that alcohol agitates individuals in such a way that frequently one appreciates an argumentative demeanor to them. They become to point that they're defensive and they like to argue because they're under the influence of the alcohol. It does many people that way. As you think about this matter of argumentation, it highlights to that which causes trouble, doesn't it? I would ask you to think for just a moment about God's proclamation on this subject compared to what we typically see in a TV commercial. The Super Bowl was played, I guess it was two weeks ago today, wasn't it? And how many beer commercials were aired over the course of that afternoon and evening? And yet the overwhelming message of them, you see pretty Clydesdale horses and you see pretty puppies, it gives you an impression of peacefulness and all is well and God says it's contentious to the very bone. Alcohol doesn't bring anything but troublemaking and contentiousness. You'll notice as God has made this, who has contentions? They that tarry at the wine. Surely in fairness to that thought, look at some of these verses. You and I know that the word of God by virtue of the gospel encourages us in just the opposite to being contentious. Aren't we reminded in Romans 12, 18, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. In James chapter 3, verses 16 and following, the inspired writer on that occasion said that 
that which is the foolishness from beneath and the wisdom that does not come from above, what is it that it brings? It brings confusion, strife, and every evil work. So far, the scale is tipped heavily against alcohol from God's perspective, isn't it? Contentions, woes, the characteristic we saw in chapter 4, verse 17. Surely in light of that, point number 4 now comes before us. What else did Solomon say? Who hath babbling? Another question of the same verse, and yet the same answer is now the same. The one who has babbling is the one who seeks after the wine the one who pursues alcoholic beverage for social consumption. What does this word babbling mean? You and I, first of all, might appreciate that. One of the things that wine seems to invariably do, it impairs the ability to articulate and to speak well. One babbles and rambles around and talks nonsense and foolishness because he's under the influence of the alcohol. But this word babbling, quite frankly, originally had more to do with complaining. Behavior that is far removed from sensibleness. In fact, look at the following. When one thinks about the matter of complaint and the kind of bickering that sometimes can come by one who is under the influence of that alcohol, and yet the Word of God challenges us to realize our speech should be employed with great favor and should be employed with tremendous blessing of God. Isn't it a commandment to one and all, those of us who strive to be of God, that our speech should be always with grace, seasoned with salt, Colossians 4, 6. We do notice so well the Master himself said that every idle word men should give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 7. Maybe finally, in that context, we can so easily recollect and recall that amazing statement that Paul made to the Ephesians. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Question, those under the influence of alcohol, are they ministering grace by the foolishness they spout forth? The question has the obvious answer, doesn't it? Who has babbling? those that tarry at the wine. One by one, as these comments, again, found in the Word of God, challenge us to contemplate the matter of today. So far, we've looked at four points. What about some additional ones? Number five. You'll notice on this slide, we've now come a little bit further in chapter 23, verse 29. Next question. Who hath wounds without cause? Now there's another question that Solomon asked, and again the answer is the same as the others have been. The one with wounds without cause is the one that tarries at the wine. What does Solomon mean, wounds without cause? It appears from the original thrust of the language. It has to do with this. We understand that wine causes one to lose that powerful sense of memory and recollection Folks do things under the influence and don't remember anything they've done. Sometimes in great shame and disgust, you see the evidence in the morning after, but they don't have any idea what they did. Whether they danced on the bar, whether they went partially undressed, whether they addressed someone in a very shameful and sad fashion, whether they engaged in some sexual activity and don't even know it. 
wounds without cause. The idea of wounds without cause suggests that you and I think like this. Isn't it true that sometimes when someone is seriously inebriated, someone says, well, he's not feeling any pain. No pain? Really? Bible says wounds without cause. Oh, he may appear to be living it up. And he may appear to be such that all is well with him or her, but what about the deep-seated problems that are coming from the alcohol? And what about the other attributes that we've already studied this morning, and yet there's many more to come? Wounds without cause? May I ask you to notice? What about the thought of many things that do happen? Perhaps to our mind races the famous incident of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Here was a man who raised a vineyard and got drunk, the text says, and he laid naked in his tent. One of his sons discovered, saw his nakedness, and in so doing there brought a perpetual curse on that boy and all of his progenity. Notice what happened by virtue of alcohol. As great a man as Noah was, building the ark, all the things about that year protecting the animals while on it, and yet following that, what a foolish choice he made. Surely in light of that, we can begin to see, oh, what wounds without a cause. There's no reason for that behavior. Alcohol does not bring one positive social advantage, not one. And yet the devil portrays it as the thing to do. And multitudes listen with eagerness and follow right along. Point number six. You'll notice one other thing. This same verse mentions by way of question is this. Who hath redness of eyes? You and I know well that person so often inebriated as such that his eyes have become red, but quite frankly the original word means more along the line of dullness than redness. He's not able to see clearly. His vision is impaired because the alcohol has brought it to that point impaired, dull vision. Notice these things. What about these statements of being caused to be out of the way? The verse that's before us, Proverbs 23, perhaps quickly draw to our mind, draws that rather graphic description of Isaiah 28:7, where there another group of people also under the influence are described as vomiting and the putridness that characterizes the choices they've made. There hadn't anything changed. Those that choose that way of life and those who seemingly find enjoyment in the can or the bottle, if you please, the dullness of vision is still characteristic of that. Notice how opposite that appears to what is demanded of those that would be pleasing unto God. You and I are admonished that we must be of sober character. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 6 Paul gave that as a direct commandment. Be sober. And later Peter affirmed the same. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. This concept of soberness in the original Greek literally means to abstain from wine. He didn't say take a little of it if you like. He said abstain from it. Maybe that concept of sobriety as it's presented there challenges us in point number six. We have a tremendous battle that you and I face. In Ephesians 6 verse 10 we're told, having done all to stand. 
at the very best we can do. It's going to be challenging at times to stand, but thanks be unto God, we have the great power of the Savior with us. But what if we purposefully and of our own volition choose to impair our judgment? Duller vision. Where there's no vision, the people, people perish, we're told in Proverbs 29, 15. If you and I want to perish, one of the surest ways, it seems, is drink. Imbibe alcohol. It leads to nowhere good. Point number seven. Solomon isn't finished yet. You and I have listed all of these characteristics of it so far and now. What about number seven? Let's go two verses later. Verse number 32 of Proverbs 23. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Alcohol solves no problems. It does not present the solution to any problem socially or otherwise. We've seen, on the other hand, it impairs the judgment. It dulls the vision. It harms the senses. It really incapacitates one to deal with the problems of life. It doesn't assist in dealing with them. You'll notice this particular statement. Likening it to what a snake can do. You might walk somewhat gingerly by a rattlesnake or a copperhead and you may think you've made it and then when you perhaps have gotten what you think to safety, at tremendous acceleration, he strikes your foot. You may think you made it. You may think that I can handle this alcohol. It will not impair me. You're only fooling yourself if you think that. Alcohol will have the last laugh. It always does. No wonder in light of that, consider what some individuals in biblical times faced with it. What are its results? What did it cause to them? Ahasuerus, one of the most profound leaders, I suppose, the Persian Empire ever knew. In Esther chapter 1, he himself had a large party and he himself drank. And as a question, as a matter, in it, he then demanded his queen Vashti present herself. Thankfully, she wouldn't do it. But look at what a foolish demand he made under the influence of alcohol. A man who otherwise can act with such sound judgment, who otherwise can behave himself with such comportness, and yet under alcohol can do the most foolish, the most ridiculous things. Another example would be Belshazzar. In Daniel chapter 5, here again a notable ancient ruler. And yet, he had a great feast and a party in which he, under the influence of the alcohol, let's bring out the golden vessels that we took from Jerusalem and serve beer and wine in it. That's the very time the hand of God appeared and wrote on the wall, you have been found wanting, Belshazzar. That man died not long thereafter. What about Herod in Matthew chapter 14? Here was a man also known for his lineage and legacy in terms of rulership. Under the influence of wine, a pretty woman danced in front of him and ultimately John the Baptist lost his head because of it. What did wine cause? What did it bring about? The promise of a drunken man caused a man to lose his life. See what alcohol does? Point number eight. In Proverbs chapter 23, Solomon still isn't finished. I would ask you to notice verse 33. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. With the senses dulled, 
You notice that on so many occasions, and you and I have seen it the last couple of years frequently on the news, college-age kids are sometimes even older, and they become so drunken and they rape somebody. They engage in these other kinds of activities for which they ultimately stand trial. Notice that Solomon said in terms of this same context of those who follow after the wine, thine eyes shall behold strange women. You may notice some other translations read that things, but there seems to be a very clear reference to female characteristics in the original language. Although a person may be under the influence, that sexuality and the urge that comes with it seems to not be that much dulled. And in the pursuit thereof, look at what happens. What about Lot? In Genesis chapter 19, here was a man so drunken he didn't even know that he committed incest with his daughters, both of them on consecutive nights, one after the other, and he didn't even know it. See what wine can do? What little alcohol can bring about? Sexual relations with your own daughter. When you and I think about the kinds of things that alcohol causes, isn't it unthinkable that someone could defend it? Point number nine. Solomon went on to say this in verse number 34. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. The description of that verse is of one who is unstable, one who doesn't make good judgments. Picture this with me. There's a ship on the sea, and perhaps the sea is a little bit less than calm. Would it be a time to lie down and take a nap while you're out there in the midst of the sea? Or should you be trying to row the boat to safety? Should you be trying to encourage the sailors and others in whatever way possible to make it a place of propriety and safety? Would that be the time to climb up on the top of the mast to see what you can see? While the boat is rocking in the waves and the strong winds are about? Of course not. And yet a person that's under the influence of alcohol, what sorts of things do they do? Sometimes songs make it out as, as though it's funny, but it's not funny. Notice Solomon said, Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. You'll also notice in light of those things, the statement of this instability wars right against the demands of God. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Maybe the last thought there is to consider that statement the Apostle Paul has provided to all of us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. If you and I have to work out our own salvation, does it make sense then to take something to make our judgment so foolish and improper? Point number 10. One by one, as these descriptions are given to us, they bring us now to this one. Everything we've listed so far is weighing the balance so strongly against alcohol. There's nothing good yet to be said for it. And yet verse 35 describes it in words like this. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. In the midst of all the heartache and the trouble it's caused, and yet those who drink it are ready to drink it again. They don't learn anything from it. 
Last statement of the verse, I will seek it yet again. Wine really does have addictive property to it, doesn't it? You and I know it well that ethyl alcohol, the active ingredient in it, is recognized by the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, as a drug. No one denies that. Notice its addictive power, the influence it can have over a person. And yet, as Solomon highlighted that in the long ago, it stands directly against the demands of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul said, I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul said, I will let no physical, sensual thing control me. And yet, those who drink alcohol, that's exactly what they do. As you think about all of these descriptions, the considerations of them, what about number 11? Taken from Proverbs 21, verse number 17, those who choose to follow the alcohol are promised that they'll not be rich. I would ask you to notice carefully the rather strong language. Two parts to the verse. Proverbs 21, verse number 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. One of the surest ways to allow one's savings, to allow the characteristic blessings that would come with financial security, to allow that to be lost is to squander it in alcohol. And it is expensive, isn't it? If you're in Walmart and you've ever had an opportunity to look at the prices on a keg or the prices on a case of beer, and yet those who take one of them home may drink it all in one or two nights. Look how much money is taken up. Notice that God there said in that verse, if you want to not be rich, one sure way to accomplish it is to make sure to avail yourself of the wine. Maybe as we come to point number 12, wine is a deceiving thing. You noticed in the verse you and I appreciated earlier in Proverbs 20 verse number 1, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You and I know so well that the uniform message of the world encourages this. And yet what a deceiving message it is. It's enjoyable, it's pleasurable, it's fun. But all these other things are never mentioned. The commercials don't highlight them for obvious reasons. Notice the deceptive character. You and I have been warned. We've been duly warned. Surely in light of that deceptive character might we recollect one final thing from Galatians chapter 6. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. These 12 points surely lead to number 13. And it really is the one that's the lesson text this morning. You'll notice as we looked at Proverbs chapter 23, we jumped over one of the verses. It's time to revisit verse 31. In light of all these things we've studied, what is the uniform encouragement of Scripture relative to this subject? Remember, we began the lesson by affirming that many are under the impression you can drink a little if you want to. Just make sure it's moderate and no more. I would ask you to look at verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, 
when it moveth itself aright. Solomon did not say, it's okay to have a little of it. He did not say, so long as you maintain moderation, everything is fine. He said, don't even look on it when it's in the cup. Don't have a propensity to meddle with it. Don't look upon it, even in the most moderate, basic way. And with that, we close our lesson. We live in a world where this message is not one that's often heard. The message was by far moderation. Enjoy it if you want to, but don't ever cross that line. The problem is, God says the line is drawn before the first drink is ever drunk, before the first sip is ever taken. And the Bible encourages us to have nothing at all to do with it. Notice finally on that slide, Ephesians 5.18 says it like this, Be not drunk with wine. That's a straightforward commandment. And the literal language initially means to begin to be softened. First drop, don't even take it. If only the world would listen with care. You and I as Christians have an obligation, an opportunity to help the understanding of a text like this one in Proverbs chapter 23. Our lesson being drawn to its conclusion today I trust that we've all been reminded that God's words are very stern and very strong and very to the point. All these things at the bottom, you'll notice that wine is described in the Bible very clearly. It does the same thing to people today that it did back then, 3,000 years ago. You would think that the human family would learn a little better, wouldn't you? But you and I as Christians under the influence of the soul-saving message of the gospel, May you and I set before others the example that God would have us to have of godliness. Today, I trust that if there's one or more in the audience that would have a need to respond to the gospel invitation, that you would not delay. Don't procrastinate or wait. The message is clear. You need to repent of your sins. That follows, of course, the statement of your belief. Confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized. If you're an alien sinner, if you have become a Christian at some former time, but you need the strength that only God can offer, why not pray for forgiveness and ask brethren to pray for you? We'd be delighted to do it. If we could be of help to you today, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?